The Jurassic coastline in Dorset is formed of time itself. Hundreds of millions of years of geological accretion, compression, erosion, trapping the strange fossils of extinct alien creatures in its layers. I'm walking the cliff path above Swanage with a famed international cellist. Natalie Klein grew up here and returns each year as the artistic director of the Purbeck International Chamber Music Festival. When she performs, she has the fierce eloquence of a musical poet. Her playing can express the gentle trace of waves lacing over the sand or the turbulent roar of the ocean as it confronts the cliffs standing in its way. One music critic said he'd walk for miles with peas in his boots just to hear her. I suppose I'm trying to get to that moment <laughs> where the Michelangelo fingers touch <laughs> and there's life and there's inspiration and it's that moment of, yeah, where the, the moment where something is from where it wasn't. Take the solidly reliable chain ferry from Sandbanks with its contemporary geology of layered concrete chrome and glass holiday flats, and you'll cross the water to Studland, a wide open landscape of gorse, sand, heather and heath. There seems to be more air on this side of the water. Every year, audiences gather in this wild, expansive landscape for Natalie's festival. This year, more than any other, the familiar excitement and expectation were mixed with profound, soothing relief that live music was back, and the applause seemed even louder. Natalie, who won the BBC Young Musician of the Year when she was only 16, has performed with orchestras all over the world and worked with conductors such as Sir Mark Elder, Sir Roger Norrington and Heinrich Schiff. But the festival venues are deliberately small, intimate affairs. This year, she and her fellow musicians performed Debussy in Corfe Castle, Brahms in Kingston Village Church, and Bach in the strange Victorian folly on the clifftop above Swanage, known as Dalston Castle, which we pass on our walk. This is Dalston Castle, and they uh, were given a big lottery grant to extend this part of the building and create this wooden structure with beautiful glass windows that look straight out to this magnificent view of the sea at the corner. The corner you can see Isle of Wight over there and then the south coast path that stretches all the way, all the way west. And um, yeah, it's this kind of huge expanse of sea that we can see in front of us. And we're going to start the festival in this room and the theme of this year's festival is light. I thought of it sort of light at the end of the tunnel and the idea of light that can sometimes be hidden under dark cloaks and sometimes they're shining so I was yeah inspired by that and looking for music that that has light streaming through it in different ways so, so in here we're going to hear Ravel and we're going to hear Bach and we're going to hear a piece by Brett Dean and um, Beethoven Quartet Opus 132 and Haydn Quartet, um, The Sunrise. Yeah. I read somewhere that you, you said, and it was so vivid, you said that 
the important thing is to take music out of its kind of performative context sometimes to, to different new places, mm -hmm. but that it had to have that serious backdrop yeah. of silence. Yeah. What did you mean exactly by that? It takes some form of concentration and investment from an audience, whether the audience is one person or a thousand people. And so it's kind of, I called it, I think, a canvas of silence um, where where the musician can sort of paint with their sound onto. And that's what I find beautiful and exciting about live concerts, because there is an effort, or I even could, could almost say a kind of communication that takes place between the musician and the listener. It's a sort of a point that they both reach. It's not something passive, like perhaps if you go and perhaps in a film, although if it's an interesting film, you also have to give something, but of course the actors in the film aren't reacting to your energy, but we are, as live performers, we really, we're feeling these, sensing these breathing, concentrated, uh, conscious beings that, that are sitting in front of us. Um, yeah, that's why this whole corona time has been so impossibly difficult for musicians, because some of us have put a few things up online from our living rooms, but it's just not the same thing when you don't have that living, breathing audience member in front of you reacting and stimulating you. For us, that living audience, the music at this year's festival seemed to be conjured effortlessly to read the churches, museums and galleries where it was played with coils of exquisite sound. But the apparent ease only comes from many hours of practice each day. And out of the case comes the precious 1777 Guadagnini cello. melds into this, her performance of Ligeti's Sonata for Solo Cello.
the first movement of Ligeti's Sonata for Solo Cello, which the Hungarian-Austrian composer wrote in 1948 and described as two people talking to each other. Natalie's performance conjures a vivid interior landscape which the listener walks alongside her. When she returns to her old family home in Dorset, close to the cliff path, walking is part of her ritual. I think there's a sense where you can feel open to possibilities, to new thoughts. Um, creativity, I think, needs its own space, this kind of, this world where you wait for something to come along. You can't push it sometimes, you can't push ideas or inspiration. Sounds like my children. <laughs> I hope it's not, because that's the end of, of any kind of creativity. Um, <laughs> I think there are countless times when I've walked around this kind of landscape with a problem or some kind of a puzzle of some kind. And just simply by sort of letting the nature, I suppose, get through your skin, get under your skin. And just by absorbing the sort of vastness of the sea, I adore that. The rhythm of nature and the... It sounds like a cliche, but it is. It's this feeling that, you know, it's all so much bigger than you. And makes these kind of small problems or small things less important. You can really feel that here. And also the beauty of the, the biodiversity of this area and the lushness of it gives a sense of excitement I think and like there's always another possibility for a different idea something new some, something new can germinate where you, where you didn't think it could and as a musician is there mm. something about that repetitive stride that thinking your ideas into existence as you rhythmically trudge along <laughs> for composers definitely I know that to be the case I mean I think it was Beethoven famously used to go for lots of walks to walk out his ideas, as did Brahms. I'm not a composer, I'm not a creator in that way, I'm a recreator. For me, it's more getting under their skin, getting into their worlds that excites me, rather than sort of creating something of my own, which, which I find less interesting. <laughs> but I suppose when I'm walking, I'm just thinking about this now for the first time, I very, very often have music in my head. I think most of us musicians do. There's usually some piece or other. In German it's called, uh, you know, like an uh, earworm, <laughs> um, where you have a kind of melody or a motif or something just kind of playing round and round. So that's repetitive and it's a, perhaps it's a kind of example of the obsessive compulsive nature of most musicians. Because <laughs> I think we all do have that, it's probably a slight necessity. It's um, interesting that word you use, recreation. Mm. My first instinct was are you actually being extremely modest? Yeah. And I thought you were sort of underplaying your extraordinary talent. But on reflection, I think there's something rather magisterial about being <laughs> able to recreate, because it's not simply replicating, it's a different kind of word, oh, isn't it? Definitely. I don't, yeah, I, I think it's more a definition than trying to sort of put myself in some kind of falsely modest situation. Um, I find it magical. Replicating is not so interesting. You can't, I think replication is anyway false. 
because every moment in life, just as we're walking actually along and we're seeing a different, you know, we're treading a new, it's with each step, um, you can't replicate something because you're not a machine. One is not a machine, thank goodness. That's, what, that's the beauty of what I do. Because I suppose I'm trying to get to that moment <laughs> where the Michelangelo fingers touch <laughs> and there's life and there's inspiration and it's that moment of, yeah, where the, the moment where something is and where it wasn't. I'd imagine that international cellists, when not performing or practising, would at the very least swathe their precious, priceless hands in thick gloves. But turning away from the driving wind on the coast path, opening a gate and heading for the shelter of the woods, I discovered that acclaimed soloists like climbing trees with their children. Um, there. We were here climbing the trees with the kids, but this might be a bit of a... We can probably get into that little bit of woods around here. There's a path. We can try... We could try Let's that. Let's do that. Okay. So There's a path into the woods here, because that's where I was with the kids. We were climbing a tree. Mm, See, this is try. the challenge of the international performer, having to climb trees too, <laughs> while thinking about your hands as well. Yeah. Careful of that. <laughs> Where am I taking you? <laughs> I'm sure it's not the biggest adventure you've ever had, but still. <laughs> well, it's pretty good. <laughs> we could, they've built a kind of a, of a camp there. Is this silly? We can know, because we can get out that way, actually. It's going to be easier getting out. And you've got good boots on. Yes. And it's not wet. So all in all. We could probably sit in here. You wanted. Let's do that. <laughs> oh, a little tent of twigs. Well, what a massive think? great wigwam of twigs. Isn't that gorgeous? I think that's perfect. <laughs> okay. Look. Do you want to sit there? Yeah. And I sit here. Perfect. See if it's covered enough from the wind. That's a lot better. Yeah? <laughs> this is <laughs> quite funny. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Yeah. So just the idea of recreation reinvention, replication. I'm also thinking about revivification. Um, I'm very interested that you have that tremendous interest in Rebecca Clark. Yes. Because in some ways, you're not even bringing her back to life. You're bringing her mm. to life full stop because so much of her music mm. was never performed. Mm. And she was treated so poorly, so mm. badly, both by her father in particular, mm. but also by audiences who maintained that anything good she did she simply couldn't have written. Mm. It must have been a man. Mm. So what was the interest for you in somehow injecting fire into that music, mm. particularly the viola piece yeah. that you then play on cello? The viola. Well, actually, there is a cello version, apparently, um, transcribed, written down by her during her lifetime. So she also was happy for it to be played on the cello. Um, it's not been given away by the estate yet. So I, together with a with a with help had to had to make my own sort of version of it. it was really just basically reading the viola clef nothing nothing complicated my choices of who I get passionate about are very much based on the music rather than anything that I, that comes outside that but then sec after I've I've gone into the music and thought this is interesting I, I find out more about them and then my passion either 
increases or very occasionally decreases if there's some really dodgy history going on that happened once recently. And in her case, of course, because she's a woman and because she suffered this very typical kind of um, misogyny, uh, prejudice, which was just so incredibly normal for all women creators until pretty recently, it was even more exciting for me. It's fabulous music. It's, it's got this kind of, it, the, both a, a sort of poetic, English folkloric quality to it which I love and which I can tap into pretty easily as you can see through through the, my environment but there's also a, I feel a, a kind of yearning for huge landscapes and I interpret that often as America and of course she ended up in America and she uh, fell in love with an American man so I think I hear I might be be pasting some kind of imaginary biographical element onto it but I do see that for myself in the music and I enjoy delving into that. Um, there's a, there is a great sensuality to her music which I, I love to, to dig into but I'm loath to say it's feminine because I, for example if I think of Brahms for me he's one of the most sensual composers I can think of. The, the male composers often enjoy tapping into their sensual side which perhaps they can't show in day-to-day in -day life, especially in 19th century Europe. Um, and, and, and the opposite too. I mean, you know, I'm sure that there were women composers that wanted, for example, Henrietta Busmans is another one, interesting Dutch composer, um, beginning of the 20th century. And I uh, played her cello sonata. And again, I'm really passionate about that music. It's beautiful and fantastically rich harmonically and rhythmically. It's great music. But, I mean, if you hear, hear that, one would say, wow, this is masculine music. It's quite angular, it's very strong, it's kind of resolute. And, and so I, I'm, I don't like these stereotypes, hearing, hearing a woman, hearing a man in, in the music. I think we all of us, men and women, all of us in life, we're much more complex creatures than that, aren't we? And none of us want to be reduced to a, to a cliché, none of us. Mm. It's interesting what you say about Rebecca Clark, that she's, she's, mm -hmm. her eyes are fixed across the water mm -hmm. to the America that then gave her a kind of life which was certainly more tolerable than mm -hmm. the life that she had here growing mm -hmm. up, where you know, her younger brother was allowed music lessons and mm -hmm. she just had to watch him being given the lessons and somehow acquire knowledge for herself via that way because mm -hmm. her, her father didn't want to invest time or, or money in her, it seemed. Yeah. But listening to her music, I almost get the sense that she's always yearning to be in the place other than the place that she's in, that somehow she's not entirely settled mm. anywhere. So that there's that look to America, but she spent a lot of her time in America. Mm. So when she's there, I feel as though she's kind of looking back in the other direction too, sort of mm. yearning for something else. Perhaps this sense of yearning is an essential ingredient to needing to create. <laughs> I mean, again, I go to all kinds of other composers as well. I mean, yearning in Schubert is so extreme. Yeah, the most beautiful parts of Mozart are all about a yearning for something. Beethoven, this kind of yearning for, for, for something. I think that this, this human need that's not satisfied in material things or in everyday life or even in everyday relationships um, often finds its outlet in, in, in music, in writing, in, in something creative. It seems to be the only way we can do it, this yearning. I've been yeah. listening to you playing Bloch and also mm. Ligeti in particular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that just seems to be so 
mournful in the sense of expressive of a landscape that somehow Ligeti's no longer in. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of common thread, isn't there, that is expressive of something that isn't always beautiful. I mean, sometimes it's very discordant, sometimes it's so physical that, that actually it sounds almost like an assault on the ears. Mm -hmm. But aside from Ligeti's sort of love of landscape, there's that sense also that we as the audience, I'm speaking about myself here, shouldn't expect music to always be beautiful. That's not what it's for. It, it's, there's a fantastic uh, saying that I heard the great Hungarian pedagogue called Ferenc, Ferenc Radosh, and he always used to say, it, it, it mustn't be beautiful, it must be true. So to look for beauty can, can be a kind of form of vanity. You don't want to look for something that's beautiful, you want to look for something that's truthful and the truth will liberate you in a way that beauty won't. Sometimes truth and beauty go together and that's fantastic, but sometimes they don't. And if you have beauty without truth, I'm not sure if that's what we need really in life. Natalie playing Rebecca Clark's Viola Sonata. Her children, eight-year-old Leora and five-year-old Aaron, the tree climbers, are sanguine about the music they've grown up listening to. For the moment, Aaron is more keen on football. This is Aaron Klein Gregorich. He is the best five-year-old footballer in the world. <laughs> is this true? Yes. Um, I'm going to do a really good kick today. We'll make it a really good one then. Yeah. Ready? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that is a cracker of a shot. He did it one kilometre. <laughs> but Leora is learning the violin with her mum as accompanist. Stand there, bit further. Yeah. D
You just made it up. Aren't you clever? Back on the coastal path, protected from the wind by our strange wigwam of twigs and branches, I wondered how much physical training a concert soloist must do to be able to perform. Watch Natalie play the cello, and she has the posture and strength of a ballet dancer. And you should see her hands. To be honest, it's, it's not physically exhausting when I'm, when I'm fit, and I don't mean fit from running, although I do do running, but um, fit from lots of practice on the instrument, so I mean uh, chillistically fit. Then, then it's not tiring, but um, again, through the, the corona time, when I've done much less playing, less concerts, less practicing, um, I found the, the physicality of playing suddenly, then I do have a concert, to be very tiring. And I realise how much, how, how out of condition my muscles are. And I've spoken to lots of colleagues and we all say the same thing, that there's a kind of f um, a fitness uh, for the muscles that you can only reach through concerts. So uh, there's a kind of pandemic of tired musicians at the moment and we're tired, not, not even if we might have been practising, but we just haven't been playing enough concerts. Yeah. I was just reading Marcus de Sotoy, the mathematician's yeah. book. Coincidentally, yeah. I'm reading yeah. away, and yeah. then suddenly there's a whole section about <laughs> practicing. You. But what it made me and laugh because he, he asked me he, about short, short shortcuts. Cuts. I said there aren't any. Yes, it just because the whole book is about shortcuts, and he's got all these mathematical shortcuts, and I'm practicing them on, in my notebook. Yes, yeah. yes, I, I get that. I get that. But then he gets to talk to you, and he mm. says that you are the cellist here, Mars, above all other That's cellists. Sweet. I can totally understand that. Um, but he desperately wants you to. Provide him with the means by which he can somehow leap over the hours and days and years mm. of labour to become mm. the best cellist in the world. Mm. Uh, and you say to him, no, I'm, I'm sorry, it can't <laughs> be done in this particular case. I wish it could. I mean, I, many of us wish it could. I know a lot of great talents that can survive on quite little practice. Perhaps he should have spoken to them. Maybe they would have given away a secret. But I also know that the, the instrumentalists that I admire the most, for example, Heifetz, for example, Daniel Schafran, all these incredible string players of the last yeah, 50, 100 years. And they were practicing their scales and practicing their, take, eating up their hours of practice every day of their life. And Casals famously uh, was practicing when he was about 93 and somebody said, why are you still practicing? He said, because I think I'm improving. I think that the more you practice and the more sensitive you are, perhaps it's specifically something to do with string playing or the string, kind of string playing I admire, the more, the more um, in touch, literally, you get with this fine control. And you kind of get addicted to that feeling of fine control. And I don't know how to do it apart from maintaining it through hours. For example, sitting here now, and I haven't done enough practice in the last weeks, since my last concert, um, I, I, my fingers, to you, they'll feel very kind of rough and uh, with hard skin like oh that. Oh my goodness but me. To me <laughs> but to me, um, they're, they're not fine enough. They should be much, there should be big, thick, deep lines through each finger from really? where I've been playing, yeah. And they should be able to, I should have in my mind the idea, the possibility that I could move them faster and I know exactly my level of fitness at the moment on the instrument, and it's not where I would like to be. You can say it like that. Jeanette Winderson so said, you must feel <laughs> Natalie's fingers. They are <laughs> like steel. All my friends love feeling my fingers. They are like steel. 
and they're fascinating they're wonderful sort of faceted ends so you've kind of chiseled off the top, top of every finger they're like feet aren't they they're, they're yeah. extraordinary <laughs> just my left hand not my right hand <laughs> but talking about feet i remember you performing a concert in oxford at the Sheldonian, and I don't think I'm inventing this, in my mind, you mm. walked on stage with mm. your cello, mm. alone, mm. in a black, sort of draped trouser jumpsuity thing, mm-hmm. and you just walked on, totally assured, but, but with a sort of humility to you, and you weren't wearing any shoes. Shoes. Is no, the, am I remembering me. this wrong? You might have been wearing some very silly shoes. <laughs> I'm not, I, there are violinists that do that, Patricia Kopachinskaya, who's an amazing violinist, she never plays with shoes on stage, and there's another uh, colleague I know who does that. If I did, I, I don't remember that. No, I like having a, like, just, I mean, I could wear these old trainers, for example, I'd be very happy in those. I, can't, I wish, I mean, you know, you, you turned up today, Charlie, in these beautiful shoes with beautiful heel, and I would love to look like that on stage, but I can't play. I need to have my heels in the ground, I need very very low shoes I can't wear my actually I don't have any stilettos in the meantime like a mixture of playing the cello carrying the cello concerts and children mean there's I mean why would I buy a pair of stilettos basically there's no room in your life for that but what is it about then having your feet on the stage and absolutely rooted to the ground what's that about Uh, it's a physical thing Um, you have the cello spike in the ground and then you have your feet in the ground and you I mean the ground should resonate really that's a, a nice image to have um, and you have to stretch up in a way so you start grounded and in the earth with the feet and also with the way that you sit on the chair and the backbone needs to be the, the kind of tree trunk so that the head can dream and that the arms can be free 